Good morning, Sir Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rebelman. Um, do, do you know that I'm, uh, I'm coming to you from Paloma Studios, a.k.a. your bedroom, starting at the end of the week? <laughs> what you don't realize is that I'm never going to leave. That's you think fine. it's just going to be a few days. No, you will leave because the, the fold-out bed is so uncomfortable that you'll be like, I love you guys, but I got to sleep. It's probably Hi. true. Um, Hi. Are you all super, is your, is your face all super plumped up from 400 facials that you just had at the can, can you see that I'm radiating a renewed, joyful energy? You are. You're, you're like, you're just, I'm, I can't actually look directly at the screen. It's like looking at the sun. Um, yep. Yeah. It, you're I get ama- this. You're amazing. Gosh, you want to maybe tell the listeners where you were? Well, I was at a very fancy spa in Austin for three and a half days. I don't want to name the spa because I plan to kind of slag it. And I don't want to get in trouble because I'm that person. But uh, it had been touted to me as, oh my God you are going to love this. It's going to be the most amazing thing. And this was an incredibly generous gift that my brother bought for my mother and me for Christmas. I mean, it was so generous. And I've always wanted to do this with my mom. And my brother was just like, ta-da, I gave it to you. And we went for three and a half days. And I walked in. First of all, uh, Look, I don't know what I expected. It's in the Austin Hill Country, but it really looked like you were pulling up to some sort of suburban strip mall. Like it had all this limestone, uh, brick and a lot of. Was it a lot of peach? Yeah. Well, it was a lot of. Um, yes, there was a lot of peach, but there was also just a lot of like bone, like the 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 rocks that look like teeth. That's very common in oh. Austin because they quarry a bunch of limestone and so it's all bone and it looks like 90s development to me because all this stuff got built up in the 90s in Austin when Austin was exploding and I think that's when this structure was built it's had two different owners before the current one and it's now owned by Hyatt which will tell you how freaking Mm. fancy it is I mean I don't know I don't want to you know but anyway we were driving up and my mom was kind of like Mm, no, <laughs> like my mom is like, my mom is like the nicest person in the world. And she was like, mm, and yep. then we walked to go check in and the woman behind the counter said to us, seriously said to us, well, I'd like you to set your intention for the next few days. And I was like, I'm fucking out of here. I'm, getting, I'm I, fucking out. I'm fucking well, out. You uh, you sent that you you texted that to me, and then we decided that the the spa we were going to open was would be called "Fuck Your Intentions." Yeah, yeah there, nobody ever wants to hear that. I've done uh, yoga classes. It's like set your intention, set your intention to not fart during class. There's my <laughs> there's my intention. Right? And it's like my intention at all times is like to be hotter than I am, to find love, there to go. be funny, and get the validation that my soul craves. Yeah, and to never die. I mean, like, what, am I going to do that? This- <laughs> next few days. I was like, it'll work out for me. Well, it did happen. You, you, you're, you're here. I, I have <laughs> yeah. to say uh, one thing, which hopefully maybe our, uh, our listeners will sometime uh, uh, get a listen to, which, which I'm calling right now um, the Cheesecake Diaries, which is um, 
so as some of you probably don't know, um, Sarah, Sarah Hepler smokes cigarettes and, you know, this is just something they don't really, I, I, I'm kind of like look well upon it, you know, $800 a night spas or whatever it is. So she yeah. would sneak off at dawn, pre-dawn, pre-dawn. It was totally pre-dawn. Cause you know, I wake up at four 30. So yeah. every day at five, the valet dude had my <laughs> car ready for me. So she could sneak off to this like wedding tent, but there was no one there except her sitting on a stump recording for me um, her oh, her thoughts, including um, including why I'm the best Nancy, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the conclusions I came to is that you're number one Nancy. Now right. I need to clarify. I know very few Nancys. So I just feel like this is a this is a very small race that you've won. <laughs> but I don't want you to. You might uh, want to also include like what the the only other one you know happens to be a robot. Yeah, it was a <laughs> robot from DoorDash that that intervened after my friggin' cheesecake wasn't delivered from the cheesecake factory. <laughs> so guys. I'd like I'm gonna make get a little metal um made up for myself, number one, Nancy. But um but also uh this will be this is gonna be a deep cut as the uh, fifth column boys say. Um some of you will remember Joe Frank. Joe Frank was a radio guy for many years. And when I lived in LA, he had a show on uh, KCRW, which is the public radio. And I just remember always listening to Joe Frank at like 11 o'clock at night, driving by yourself through the Valley. And Joe Frank, I can't, re- I'll put a, I'll put a link in the show notes. I can't really explain Joe Frank to you. Maybe Sarah will, because she's now, I introduced her, but her little 13 minute audios, which I, by the time I got up, she'd already, you know, had four cigarettes and uh, had sent me this audio. They reminded me so much of Joe Frank. And they're just amazing. That's so cool. Well, um, uh, yeah, Joe Frank is somebody I I did not know about until you sent me the, the audio. And so how I would describe it is very sexy, um, and very mysterious. And so it has this sort of classic driving at after dark on a long highway uh, alone into somewhere you don't know where you're really headed and there's mist and m- maybe some like passing cars every once in a while that spook you out. And it is just a really amazing adventure. You know what it reminded me of? And I don't know the years on Joe Frank and KCRW is so cool. Um, but it reminded me of a song by Tom Waits called Ninth and Hennepin. Okay. Do you know that song? It was nice. Nope. I, I don't really know Tom Waits. Okay. Though, but I do have a Tom Waits story that I'm going to tell this episode. So. Okay, good. Well, let, Go let me just give you the first line yep. of Ninth and Hennepin, which is basically like a creepy spoken word, you know, done by like your growly hungover uncle. And the first line is, it was Ninth and Hennepin and all the donuts had names that sound like prostitutes. And you're like, what the uh, well, fuck? Wow. That's like right there. Like that, that's I- immediate. If your brain can go there, it's immediate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to add about Joe Frank. There's a, there's a place, I don't know if it's still there, called the Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles. I lived in Los Angeles for years and I heard about this museum. It's a small museum on the West Side. And I, I thought it was just a museum of some, I don't know, some kind of like dinosaur stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I walk into the museum. It's very small. And you're walking. And you're like, oh, wait a second. It's all 
it's all like conceptual and could be real, but isn't real, but maybe oh, it's real. Weird. And that, and it's, but it's really small too, which is like, and once you get it, you're like, oh my God. And that to me is kind of what Joe Frank reminded yeah. me of. It's like real, not real, don't care, but yes, could be. And that's okay. Thing. All right. I'm going to tell my Tom Waits story only because I was going to tell it last time when we, when you mentioned him, um, it's not that big deal. But when my daughter was, um, I had to get her from, uh, like she was in preschool, I had to get her in school. Our, our schools where I lived in LA, um, the first one I went to to visit public school, um, there was nothing on the walls at all. Nothing. Zero. No art. No nothing. No announcements. There was one sign and it said, bring a gun to school, get expelled. I was like, well, this is sort of super heartening. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'm going to check a different school, like down the street where my brother lived. I could have illegally like enrolled her with that address. And I went into the school and um, it was because there were so many kids, the schedules were staggered. So you didn't necessarily start in September. Maybe it was October or January. Anyway, the class I walked into had been in school for three or four months. And the alphabet was along the sides of the wall of the ceiling. And she said, yeah, yeah, we've been here and we're on letter B. And I was like, yeah, this is not so, I mean, I I was, you know, I was uh, basically raising this kid. I, she had a very, very loving father, but we weren't together, and I was yeah. the sole support of her. So I was like, I got to send her to private school. So I found this, someone told me, like, there's this little thing. It's new. It's like three years old. It started in this church in Hollywood by, like, Ned Beatty, the actor who was in Deliverance and Wife. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, let me check it out. Whatever. I know the church is this giant church that has an AIDS ribbon on it on the corner of um, Franklin and Highlands and big parking lot. I park my car. Mm -hmm. And as I'm walking out of the gate of the parking lot, who is walking in but Tom Waits with his arm around a lovely gal. She's got on this sort of like country girl skirt. And I'm like, if this school is good enough for Tom Waits' kid, it's good enough for me. And that is indeed where both all our kids went to school. That's fantastic. The, the Oaks, yeah. I didn't see him there very much, but um, yeah, it was a great, 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 great little school, which then grew and became like super fancy. But when we were there, it was not was not that fancy and it was not that uh, expensive. So. so speaking of last week, we were talking about celebrities and what you know about celebrities and whether they live public lives or private lives. Right. I've been obsessed with Tom Waits for more than 20 years, and I've read multiple profiles of him. I've never read the book I have on him, but I did not know he had kids. Yeah, well, that's right, because why? why you don't need to, right? He I don't need to. It's none of yep. my business. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so, uh, God, I've, I feel like we have a lot to talk about that we've been uh, texting. Yes, um, and can I just tell you, just to yes. like ground myself in where, and maybe we'll just start here. I just read the Ben Dreyfus piece that you sent me. Which is, it's on, so we, some people know, I've got a media site with Matt Welch called uh, Plumomedia.com and The Well, which is journal speak for like the main story of the day. I got up this morning. I didn't know what I was going to post. I said, like, let me look at people that are in the Paloma Media Cosmos orbit. Ben Dreyfus is one of them. He's happy for us to run his stuff on the Substack uh, on, on the Paloma. And this was from last year. And I read it this morning. I was like, this is it. This is this is this is everything we're talking about all the time. And he's such an incredible writer. And Sarah Heppola, go. That's from last year. Yep, 2021. Okay. Well, I just want to say, first of all, I know Ben Dreyfus by reputation and sometimes um appearances on the fifth column, but I had never read anything he'd written, and I'm really not very familiar with his work. So I didn't know what to expect when I opened this up this morning. And I just had a such a direct hit with this piece. It was 
really, I read it very right before we talked and I really had to like ask you for a few moments extra to kind of let it settle on me. He opens with a scenario that has similarly happened to me. It was one of those things that, this is the beauty of writing. It's what they call the shock of recognition, right? A moment when someone describes an experience that you thought was uniquely your own. And they Mm -hmm. do it in a very, like, it's a very low key way. I, I like his style throughout this. This is not a big swing essay. This is actually a really pretty low to the ground, humble piece about a an alarming experience that he had that really illuminates the way that rhetoric and I don't even know how to say it. It's, uh, I don't like the word weaponized, but sometimes you need it. And it's like the word, the word and the concept of rape has been so weaponized, um, particularly against men as a sort of get out of jail free card from all conversations. It's sort of the new, Hitler. Mm. And I don't know if this is making sense to anyone that didn't read the piece. So let's just give the name of the piece. Just, I mean, it won't tell you everything about it. You uh, literally, you can go read it very easily on palomamedia.com or go there and and, um, Google his name and you'll find it. And the name of the piece is, the world is not filled with monsters. It's filled with normal, flawed human beings. And the subtitle is, don't be the person who demands to know who has and hasn't suffered. Yeah. But though, though I'm not sure, I, that's not exactly how I would characterize the piece. I would characterize the piece kind of as as you are, which are it's 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 someone saying you're not allowed because you are not of this sex or this race or you may have not had this particular experience that other people have had. You're not allowed to make a comment on it, which is so incredibly bananas. It's like how does the world gain knowledge? If you don't, if you're not allowed to discuss these things. Well, and that's the idea that he's addressing. But the story that he tells is someone challenging him. You know, has this happened to you? And he steps up to the moment with a sort of white hot rage going on and tells her a story he's never told anyone before. And apparently very economically, like in 13 words or whatever <clears throat> it was, as he says. And 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 and, and, and just I, I, this has happened to me before. I'm getting a little bit like uh, I have an ulcer that flares up because of my drinking years and I'm shitty eater. And uh, it's starting to flare up right now because Sorry. no, it's OK. I might have to get some seltzer, but um, it actually has happened to me on a few different fronts. Uh, about people that I loved having diseases, about rape, about abortion, about all sorts of things. And I have been shocked to find myself return volley with something that I really had absolutely no intention of telling anybody just to kind of win the argument in the moment. And why I did that, I've also suppressed it in the moment to lose the argument and felt like a I don't, I think it's an unwinnable war. I think it's an unwinnable war to be in a situation where you're across from somebody that demands that you have a uniquely unique piece of suffering in order to have an opinion about some matter. Because you either need to cough up your unique suffering for this stranger or friend, whoever it is, or you have to pretend like this unique piece of suffering didn't happen to you by which you 
you kind of do a a small, tiny little piece of damage to your own heart if you're someone like me that doesn't like to pretend things didn't happen. So isn't it, it, sorry, one second, isn't it kind of axiomatic that the person that is going to tell you, you know, you're not allowed, like if you, if you weren't raped, you're not allowed to mention something. And then you pipe up and you say, well, actually I, I have been. And then the person just goes, uh, okay. And then turns to the next person and says, well, have you been raped? Like there is no set. The person that is saying that to you is not actually interested in your experience. They're interested in it. She's interested or he's interested in, 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 um, iron cladding their own in scare quotes opinion and, and, and that they should be allowed to have the last say in this, you know, amen and forever. So it doesn't matter. That's if anybody right. else says, yeah. It, it's a way to win an argument and lose the battle of being human. Um, we talk and, about this all the time, Sarah. Yeah. And and I think the most chilling detail in it, and it was very real to me, was when the conversational partner, when Ben coughs up whatever he does, and he's vague with us because he doesn't want to share oh, that's fine. this. It's he fine. says that. He's like, I don't want to share it. Yeah, that's I don't want to share it. And, and then, then he the person who we assume is a woman, she, yeah, it is. She, he says, it's a woman, yeah. it's a woman. Yeah. And she turns to the next person and says, so have you been raped? That's the Incredible. chilling detail to me. That's the moment that was like, oh, I can see this happening. And this person just wants, they're trying to save face in a weird way. And they're trying, they're, they're pulling their little trick on the next person. And it's just so... You know, I remember years ago, I was at Salon, and it was kind of, it's all pre-Me Too, this is like 2010, and a very smart, very well-respected writer, whose name I'm not going to mention, pitched me a story that said, why do feminists always talk about rape? And I wrote back to her, because we were in the business of like, she would pitch me a story that was basically a subject line. And then I would write back and be like, yeah, what, you know, what do you think? What would the essay be about? And she started riffing. And it was, again, it might've been even before 2010. It might've been like 2008, but it was the first time that I noticed that an idea which was almost never discussed in other quarters was I was seeing it like constantly in these feminist blogs. They were constantly talking about rape. And then a few, like a year later, there was a big kerfuffle about rape jokes, rape, 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 rape. And I was like, if this is the worst thing that can happen to a woman, which is a whole separate argument, whether or not that is the case, why do we keep talking about it? Why is this the one thing you want to be talking about all the time? And it's interesting because I don't even know if that writer that pitched it to me even remembers pitching it to me. And I think she would probably disavow that she had, it was almost an innocent observation. It was a, it was a pre me too observation. And I wonder now I'd have to, I I don't have a relationship with this person anymore, but anyway, uh, that the rape. I think it's a big, um, you know, it's such a, it's such a terrible thing and it's something that you can 
is this going to sound so weird, but it's like you have it on your side um, in a sense. Like if you're, if you're going into an argument or a discussion or ideological war or whatever, it's like, well, this is so bad. So we're going to make sure this is a big flag that we hang because it's this important. And I'm not saying it's not. Um, I, I'm just going to jump track because I, I don't have an answer for this. I, I just did a... Um, I just did a podcast, not a podcast. I did a uh, a long, like ninety minute um, interview with this PhD student who's writing about um, writing about cancel stuff. And some of the stuff we talked about kind of surprised me that I found myself talking about it. And one was exactly kind of what we're talking about about like what people come at you with that, like, well, you can't you can't say these things because if you do, then you're like, you know, the bad person. Um, but one thing that I found myself um, saying, which I've said a lot in writing, is if, if you are a person who, um, whether you're the person in the bar that is saying, well, have you been raped, but not really caring what their answer is because you've got your objective or you've got your mission. I mean, also, can the the crazy insensitivity of that is bananas. I can't even... I'm, can I sorry. just say one thing, too? Because I want to add, before we leave this conversation, I feel like it's yeah. very important to say that the that the the act of rape is being deployed in this particular conversation that we're talking about as though it is unique to women. It is not. Uh, the number of men that have been raped is actually, if we want to talk about a silent, I wouldn't say epidemic, but a silent affliction, um, it is much higher, particularly in jails, as we know from pop culture and jokes jokes also, about soap and so and also I, young you know how many i mean i have a brother who's younger and i know stuff he uh, managed to evade this but there you know there was like the older guy in the neighborhood that pretended yes. to be like friends with the boys lots of and the, this is something that uh it first of all rape throughout history has been cloaked in shame and you're the shameful person and you're the one that's to blame for it now Women can talk about it more. I think it's still extremely hard for men to talk about. Extremely I mean, hard. And above and beyond whatever this person, this conversational partner was doing, their ignorance that that rape is also something that affects men uh, just kind of grosses me out. Well, she didn't care. It didn't she seem didn't like care. she cared about that. I mean, if she did, she would have said, oh, my God, Ben, oh, my God. No, she didn't. She just went, uh, okay, anyway, so have you been raped? I can't shit. even imagine having this person. But anyway, speaking with this PhD student, we were talking about humanity and inhumanity. And I was like, well, she's like, do you do you hate the people that did the certain thing to whatever? It's not important. Um, and I was like, no, because here, I mean, yeah, I could get riled up, sure, for sure. But the thing is that if you if you live your life this way, if this is like one of the tools in your arsenal, like the sort of easy way to defeat someone, or we've talked about this, you know, call them a rape apologist or do whatever, you're actually you are actually corroding your own humanity, right? Mm -hmm. So I haven't actually been corroded. If you accuse me of something I have not done. I, it doesn't corrode me in any way, but it does corrode you. And it also, you are also making a world in which you believe in corrosion, you know, mm -hmm. corrosion, copyright. And, um, and then I do feel bad for you. And I feel bad for, you know, the world that is made that way. And I think that's part of what, you know, Ben's essay was about too. It's like, you can't, you can't do this. We're allowed, we're all allowed to say things. He started talking about the C word, which was 
hilarious. Like, where if you're allowed to say it, like, why are they allowed to say it in England and not allowed to say it in America? And one person's like, you have to tell all your British friends to never use the C word. And he's like, well, why? Sorry, did I just scream so loud your ear? No, I have. <laughs> I had an itch in my ear, but I was laughing. Um, and yeah, and that's the the premise that sets up her. That's the same friend that yeah. once that 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 then turns around and tries right. to win this argument by saying, "Have you because, been raped?" Because they say "cunt" in 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 because he doesn't think it's a terrible thing to say "cunt" in Britain. Her response is, "Well, have you been raped?" It's like, wait, what? I it's feel so like unrelated. I, I feel like seventy frames in the film were just cut out. I'm like, how did I get here? Yeah, um, I think it's also it's something I've been thinking about a lot this week. It's just like. Um, so I, I thought, first of all, Ben Dreyfus, not in this particular essay, Ben also could be like one of the funniest people, writers you've ever seen. Like, you can't believe how funny this guy is. This one was very, was not particularly funny. Um, he really addressed things well. And he was profoundly anti-cynical. And that is really, it's kind of a feat these days, you know, to be anti-cynical. And I really, really, really appreciate that. I have two things to say. One is that can I also say the word cunt because you got to say it? Yes, please. Also, and by the way, my daughter and I think we want to bring back the word twat. Oh, we I like it. It's funny. It's a good word. Twat's a good. It's funny. It's very Monty Python-esque, it's right? so <laughs> Monty Python. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, go ahead. So, yes. You That's twat. Not- it you really t- does sound like an <laughs> insult. But it's also funny. It's, it's so a, funny. It's a funny word. It just I used itself. to laugh about queef. That's a really funny word, too. What is I, is that what is queef? I think I know. Is it? I, sorry, I don't think I want to know, but I don't really remember. Nancy, I don't, don't want to know. It's <laughs> when the vagina makes a farting noise during sex. <laughs> what? I've never heard of such a thing. Because <laughs> the air bubbles get caught, and then the, the farting we're, noise. We're gonna have. We're gonna oh, in the show notes. We're gonna have a glossary. Yeah, the, that's good. Notes. Yeah, that's okay. good. Um, and. We're turning into Urban Dictionary here. And uh, the other thing I wanted to say was about this anti-cynical thing. Um, when I was in my 30s, I dated a homicide detective. He was one of the sort of great loves of my lo- early life. And one of the things about him was that he saw the world through the eyes of somebody that had such a dark and soul eroding profession. I mean, his business was to investigate dead bodies. Uh, it's the kind of stuff of television. It was the stuff of real life for him. I thought it was really cool until I realized how completely um, painful it was for his heart. But he would walk through the world kind of seeing what could go wrong. In other words, when we were sitting at dinner and three guys came in for water, he saw them as probably casing the joint because who needs water and why are they doing that? And his eyes would narrow and I could see it happening. He was a very happy-go-lucky guy. And then you would see him sort of sharpen into a kind of cynical worldview. Uh, One of the reasons that he loved me but not enough, uh, was <laughs> that I did not have this cynical view. So, for instance, when we passed a dumpster, he would look at a dumpster and see all the things that could happen or go wrong in the dumpster. All right, that was 2005, five, six, seven, 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 eight. Fast forward 15 years, and 
this is how my friends who listen to true crime podcasts see the world. It is honestly, they look at the world and see what could happen to them. They look at a dumpster and see their proximity to it could potentially mean their body could be dumped in it. There could be a dead body in it. I mean, it is wild to me how a lot of our media and media obsessions and things like Law and Order Special Victims Unit, which my friend was in, I'm, you know, like I, I love Stephanie and that's a show that a lot of people love, but has, has tilted people's view of the world, has hijacked our evolutionary danger alert system so that we believe that there are monsters everywhere when in fact the world is mostly filled with good people with a few other, like some, some really alarming exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you can see this all across American society. I remember getting in an argument once with a guy in Iceland who wanted to know why Americans didn't hitchhike. And I was like, because the, you'll, you'll die and the serial killers will kill you. And he was like, I just want to know how many people have been killed by serial killers because of hitchhiking? And I was like, 100%. No. (laughs) (laughs) Probably 100%. Because I I grew up in the 80s, and so I never saw that beauty of what it was to live in the 50s and 60s when you could hop in someone's car and drive to the next station with them, getting company and companionship and sharing a ride and not even having your own car. I mean, that the whole beauty of that was erased by uh, a late eighties movie called the hitcher, which completely changed how I see hitchhiking. I used to hitchhike. I used to hitchhike. I mean, first super safe. This is like mid late seventies on Martha's Vineyard. Everybody hitchhiked like everybody, like every single, all the kids hitchhiked. You don't have a car. Everybody picked it and it's super safe, but I've hitchhiked from uh, New York to Maine in the, 80s and I hitchhiked I hitched right hiked around upstate New York because my mom lived up lives up there and might have to go like someplace and I never trying to think if I ever had a bad I never had a bad experience except once when I was 13 uh my friend and I on the vineyard got on the back of these two guys on motorcycles like not mopeds like they have on the vineyard, but like motorcycles men on motorcycles stopped for us and we were going to um an area called Oaks Bluffs Oaks Bluff and there's a like a little bridge that kind of um kind of opens up. What are those called? Those bridges that like open up so the boats can go through. There's a name for them. I'm too stupid to know what it is. But uh then they closed down. You can't go over, but they hopped it. Like oh my god. It wasn't a big hop. It wasn't like evil. It wasn't like Fonzie (laughs) at uh, in happy days. (laughs) But it was it was like a couple of feet because the bridge was just starting to go up. And then the cops stopped us on the other side and my friend and I were like, bye. But uh thanks for the ride. But um I never I've never had a I never had a bad experience. And I was, you know, I was a teenager. Um, but okay, or in my early twenties, but I don't I you know, I have to say, having a daughter when she was a teenager, I don't know how delighted I would have been. Well, she did hitchhike on the vineyard when she was a kid. Um, you know, but that's a very safe kind of enclosed, uh, enclosed environment. For Um, sure. I mean, you know, one of the things that that hitchhiking conversation made me aware of, and this was probably about four years ago, was the extent to which outlier experiences begin to define the American experience, partly because of lawsuits, you know, and media cases. 
And so you see it again and again with like, for instance, sexual assault on campus or you see it with race and policing that these out and and kids being kidnapped, (laughs) um, which is statistically very, very rare, uh, but but affected generations of children and parents. And, you know, again and again, you see these either outlier experiences or urban legends. I mean, in the case of hitchhiking, I actually don't know how many hitchhikers ever were killed. I think that is more an invention of pop culture that I'm responding to. You know, that I would see it repeatedly in movies portrayed. Yeah, well, uh, it's, something it's, that it's, would, it's a trope. It's like a device, right? How do we? Yeah. How do we get? Yeah, I mean, I mean it happens. Like, Eileen Wernos, she she killed some people. That but wasn't she the hitcher? I think she was the person hitchhiking. That, uh, I don't think she was the person driving. She was the well, person. That's a really I think, good point. Hitchhiking. I mean, I think yeah, so. you can't pick up hitchhikers because they might be Eileen Wernos. There you go. Yeah, she. Um, okay, so you know what else I did this morning? Uh, half of it in the bathtub. I um I just, I watched, can I just pause and imagine yes, what this might be? Yes, it, <laughs> it's not that. Right. Uh, it was uh, I listened to now. the listened and watched the um, Elon Musk. Oh, the uh, the TED kind of hot to do that in the bathtub. He, we he, wow, yeah, it, it was no. Besides that, I have to say, um, I I. I loved it. I, I, first of all, I have never really, I mean, of course, of course I've seen Elon Musk. I mean, and I've seen him talk, but I've never seen him talk for an hour. Um, and he's, um, quite compelling, quite funny. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know when they say later on, the, um, interviewer is like, you know, you, what was it like growing up with, um, Asperger's and I didn't know we had Asperger's and, you know, Asperger's yeah. is one of these things. It's like how we stretch the definition of things, right? Everything yeah. like you're dyslexic. Well, so now these 500 different things, but didn't they watching- change the name too? Because Asperger is an asshole. Wait, what? I'm pretty sure oh. they changed the name Asperger's because the Ask Mr. Asperger was problematic. Oh, well, I wow, we're gonna have to do a lot of changing. I mean, <laughs> if this is the thing, if everything that someone has done in the past has been problematic, we're just gonna have to what are they just, what are they gonna call oh. the Hitler mustache? <laughs> <laughs> um, but even before, like he said that, I was like, wow, this this Elon Musk, he's got something going on. Like he's very, very yeah, he's very verbal, he's very, he's very funny, he's quick, he's interesting. But there's definitely something like going on. Um, yeah. uh, I found him like the first thing that I was absolutely captivated by. Since I have to go see my my poor old mom today, who's like starting, she's having memory issues, and um, he's like, "Yeah, we could have like robots that help care for the elderly." I was like, "That's a great <gasps> I idea. Know. That's a great idea because everybody's busy. It's like everybody's working, or I'm going back to Ukraine, and it's like, how do you make sure? And you know, we're doing the best we can, but sometimes I feel like we're holding things together with like chewing gum and scotch tape, mm-hmm. and all she really needs." because she's physically she's great is she loves company she loves to talk to people and she wants that so much and i'm like wow you could just like you know in in addition to going out and doing what you're doing you could have somebody around i mean i know it's a robot and that sounds really sad i'm gonna get 900 letters going wait you want your mom to hang out with a robot well in addition to me yes yeah why the fuck not like why not have a more of um of an of a sort of an army of of people that can be useful in this situation or can alert you when something's going on. I also found the AI part the most compelling aspect of that talk. 
and was also hit in multiple ways by some of those observations. I mean, first of all, the thing with robots caring for the elderly, um, it's really not a big extension from wanting to get dogs or cats for the elderly. Um, It is a dog or a cat that could also do the dishes, change the diapers, do physical things. Um, Physical therapy. Yeah, no one's something's happening. Doesn't do any of those things yet. So the part oh, that I know, the part that scares me and delights me and fascinates me is this stuff about romances with AI and the deep connection. I, see, I end up doing, I did like my what you're calling the cheesecake diaries, which is funny. Yeah. Which is funny. Yeah. Um I talk about this a little bit. I kind of riff on this idea because the movie Her was, I thought, one of the most profound movies of the last five to 10 years and definitely the best romantic comedy. Um, It is so fascinating to think about what attachment is, what romantic longing is, since most of it is projection anyway. The idea that the other person needs to be human isn't really true. I mean, it's an extension of my crushes and all the different men I have loved that didn't even know I existed. And those relationships (laughs) were still meaningful to me. The idea that they might return that to a lonely person is really profound. I am not sure if I think this is a great idea or a a or a, or a love ending idea. In other words, if there could be infinite 90s Johnny Depps and one of them could be mine, would I ever seek anything else? Well, look, it's options. I'm going to ask you a question that I, I don't know the answer to, but like how many relationships have you had, um, romantic relationships, or maybe not even romantic, but romantic that were like you rarely, if ever, saw the person? It was basically oh. all like I, I like done by like back in the day, like oh my done God. By fax, or it's now done by DM or whatever. This you can build like this is real. This is real because you are. And so it's like, okay, so you take it another step. Um, I remember years ago. I, I, this is really, God, this is so, this is like 20 years old. So it's really not germane, but it kind of is in a way. A girl that I knew who was engaged at the time to a guy who she lived with, she found out that he was having like sexy, sexy time talks with someone online that he would never meet. Like, well, who even knows if the person was real or who she represented herself to be? And I was like, she was she was beside herself. And I was like, why do you care? Like, what? Why do you care? Like, it's 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 something that is that's that's not going to be actuated. You know, that and that he was, I mean, I guess you could care. I guess you could think it could break you up or something, but it's like, it's, it's, it's another option, right? Well, we're Why getting not? into really fascinating territory of what is infidelity. And if you categorize infidelity as a physical act in the physical world, men do it more. But is that if right? You, I thought it was like yes, 50-50. No. Okay. If you categorize infidelity as something that happens, can happen on phones, emotional uh, photos and all that, then women are very high. 
off, off the charts. charts higher. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it really gets down to what is more threatening. See, I've had relationships with men that I rarely saw because they lived in another city or they were busy or I was busy or I was traveling all the time or whatever. And they were more intense than relationships where I lived with somebody. Oh, and yeah, because so, you're like watching TV at night. with the Well, and also on. like it, that is a connection of the heart and soul that does not need physical confines. And so I, I mean, on one level, I totally respect what you said to your friend on an, cause I don't know what the, the relation, the conversations were, but on another level, do not fool yourself that, that virtual means harmless or, or, or without any threat or will not, will not impact or will not will, impact. It can. Well, but then, you know, okay. So, okay. Let's, let's go one step backwards. Well, there's a reason why people do that, right? If you're like, totally like, if you and I are like sitting and talking and da, 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 we're eating popcorn and planning, blah, 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 I'm not also doing something on the side because I'm completely engaged with you. But when you're not completely engaged in something, you're looking at your phone, you're doing this, you're maybe going and having sexy time. It's like, there was a chink in the situation. Don't use uh, that little, word. Don't use that word. Look, chink also means a crack. I don't know what, are we going to have no language? Are we just going to have to like use hand signals now? Okay. There's a crack. Can I use crack? No, but crack is also bad too, right? We can't have crack pie, which Momofuku used to make because that, I mean, it, come on, Sarah, we're just going to, okay. Thank you everyone for listening. This is the end of our we podcast. We ourselves. We're, we're totally done. There was done. a chink in the armor <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> we're done. But anyway, there's, there will, there is something that allows that to happen. And yeah. hey, look, the world continues to turn, right? And so these things happen. Yeah. Um, 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 but before we, we I want to just say one thing, which I don't know why, because I wrote it down on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you were watching the Ben Franklin uh, uh, documentary, the Ken Burns documentary. You're, she's fanning herself, uh, listeners, you can't see. She's actually, she's flushing. That that radiant glow, you're now like, you're like, now like. I have like, such a crush on 19. You're nuclear. 17, 1720 Ben Franklin is okay. like so He's 16 too, oh, but he's so like, everything is like, just like burning for that guy. He works so freaking, so freaking hard. But, um, what, Hey, you see any, he said something about, it's like, it's about, it's not, Elon Musk said something about, it's not about finding the answers. It's about asking the questions. And that's mm -hmm. what curiosity is, right? It's about curiosity. And Elon Musk also said one other thing, which I actually typed into my phone while I was in the bathtub truths he's looking for truths that have predictive power and how like ben franklin was that yes yes i, mean, I was so also the same i was also reminded of elon musk while i was um watching ben franklin again this morning while i was in the bath that's what i was listening to while i was in the bath was what? ben franklin yes this is true so i wrote down something that i would like to share with you please um just because I wrote it down. And I want to give a little bit of context for this. This is around 1722. Uh, ben Franklin is about 16 years old and his older brother, James Franklin, has started a newspaper. It's the first independent newspaper really probably ever. And one of the things that they're doing, they're from a Puritan family and they're pushing back on this Puritan, you know, 
sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of stuff. Cotton and Mather. Cotton, Cotton Mather, Mather. Was a horrible, horrible human being. Sorry, I've, I've read about him in Stacey's Shifts, The Witches. Horrible human. A horrible Sorry. human being. And so, so Ben Franklin's older brother, James, writes uh, an op-ed against Cotton Mather and ends up in jail. Yep. And Ben Franklin, who has had two years of formal education, primarily self-taught, and is writing a column under the name Silence Do-Gooder, pretending to be an old woman from the country. I mean, first of all, this is just my dream man. I'm just completely, I'm, everything about this has hit every button I have. Uh, and, and so he writes a column in defense of his brother. And he's quoting from a London newspaper that he read. But uh, but I just found it so beautiful. And he writes, without freedom of thought, there can be no such thing as wisdom and no such thing as public liberty without freedom of speech. Whoever would overthrow the liberty of a nation must begin by subduing the freeness of speech. This is our daily lives, right? It, it, can you imagine? We are still having this debate every day. Every day. Uh, about who's allowed to say what. We're talking about Ben's essay. All, I mean, everybody lost their bleeding minds on Twitter this week in, uh, about um, Elon Musk perhaps buying Twitter, which makes me incredibly curious. I mean, I just think it's completely, again, you're, you're glowing. Uh, but I mean, who was it? Uh, Max Boot said he's frightened. It's like, you're frightened. I'm like, I'm going to go to Max Boot's doorstep and sing the last two lines of the Star Spangled Banner over and over to him until he can just like realize that we want to be free and brave. That's what we want to do. Who is Max Boot? He's a guy. So was it? Did he write for Gawker? Well, no, 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 Matt. So, so Matt Taibbi had a great little column who he cited, and and Matt Walsh actually wrote a really good column too for reason that we recorded for the Plumo Media podcast um, about um, about Max Boot being frightened, and uh, Taibbi called him a fuss budget, <laughs> which was great. Taibbi is like, such a good wordsmith. Uh, He's Such a so, good wordsmith. And he's so freaking fast. I write like oh, I write at disgusting. one one thousandth of the speed as Taibi. Like something happens, it's like he's boop, a beast. He's got three. Yeah, I know. But um uh no, he I think uh, Max Boot Mike is at the Washington Post now, where they all are, where they're everyone's hair is on fire. And please, we we shall devote an entire episode at some point to Margaret Sullivan, who I do not think has had one trenchant thought in in three in three years, except but she's got all that real estate over there. But we're not going to do that now because that's that's another conversation. Um, so so what else happened this week? You you speaking of speaking of terrible writers, um, you sent me um, you sent me a little piece from Gawker. Yes. You know, I we don't even have to get into it, but I'm going to say I'm going to say two things. I am, and it could only be because I'm not going and looking at Gawker, but the pieces, you know, they 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 came back from the dead uh, about about five months ago, and I I don't read it. I looked at it the first day it came out, and it was the scrolling was like it was not interesting. The whole layout was not interesting, and the three stories that people have alerted me to since then have all been absolutely pissy and pointless. Like 
pissy and pointless. And the one that you sent to me, which referred to you later on in the story, I'm in the first paragraph and I'm like, do I have to read this? Because this is not well written. It's very cranky. And what she cited as good writing and like what made her laugh out loud, I was like, there was like, there was absolutely nothing, nothing funny there. And I said to you, this is like, this is like the cranky person at the party. And anyway, I, I, and you know, that's up to you if you want to go into this, but so this is an essay I discovered because I saw it posted on Twitter by somebody saying, you know, I liked Sarah Heppel's essay, but I also like this in Gawker. And I was like, well, what is this in Gawker? And it was an essay that had just been posted. It The headline was the pity me essay. And <laughs> the picture was fairly hilarious because it was a crying baby. And uh, the baby was adorable. I showed the essay to my mom and she burst out laughing just because she was like, oh, that reminds me of you. And I was like, yeah, like, you don't even know. You don't even know, mom. This is exactly where it's going. They see what you see. And I was the primary character in a grump speech about several essays that this person did not like. One thing I learned about this writer is that she lives in London by way of Belfast. And one thing I know from Sally Rooney novels is that people in Ireland are very unhappy. Mm. And I, I, I like that one. What did what did, something people that Sally normal Rooney? people? I like that book. I loved that book. Couldn't watch the show though. Tried. Couldn't no, watch same, it. Same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. But same. The, but the book but was the book was really good. The book was phenomenal. Yep. And it captured a certain boredom and nihilism that was so familiar and amplified to me. But I really thought, okay, so you're from Sally Rooneyville. And <laughs> is that like Whoville? It is. <laughs> and we see the world differently. Uh, but, well, the only thing I really find unforgivable in that essay is that it decries the humorless of my essay and proceeds to be utterly humorless itself. So it is a very unfunny essay. So it demonstrates what it seeks to critique. It's also incredibly cynical. Mm -hmm. It's very, very cynical. And looking through, look, I love I love you, Sarah Hepla. We know that. I love the way you write. You're, you know, I've read Blackout, which is about a pretty serious subject. This is Sarah's book. Obviously, it'll be linked in the show notes. Um, and you know, even through like just some pretty scary times, you managed to be like really, really funny. You mm-hmm. can be an extremely funny writer. Now, the essay in question that the Gawker writer is talking about is um um uh the things I'm afraid to write about. Now, that she feels that you're saying pity me in this essay, I, I I don't relate to that at all because I know what you're talking about is the truth for, for a lot of us and for a lot of people. She hasn't, you know, maybe she's quite young. Maybe she's never seen it. Maybe she does not spend yeah. any time on Twitter. Maybe she doesn't understand that, you know, people are afraid for their careers. Um, you know, it, one yeah. thing about, you know, uh, this, again, this PhD student I, I, I talked about uh, that I spoke with, you know, the people that are sort of engaging in these 
campaigns a lot of times are very young, like a lot of the times, and they don't really have much to lose. And so, you know, it's a little different if you're like 40 and you've got kids and you want to, anyway, in any case, I didn't find, um, I I only made it 65% of the way through that piece because I was so, it just wasn't well done. And it kind of makes me wonder, like, I mean, I don't think anybody's reading Gawker anyway, but I don't know. It's just kind of a, it, it, it made me, it was it was not trenchant. It was not human. It was not worth anybody's time, really. And why? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think? So I didn't see it on Twitter. Did people have responses to it that they thought this, this was like, yeah, lady, that's a really interesting point you're making. I actually didn't look. I didn't okay. find that that would be healthy for me. I sent it to a couple of friends, including you, and I asked them, "Is there something that I'm missing here?" Because I actually, I feel like I've lived my especially the last 10 to 20 years. Well, that's a wide swath. The last 10 years (laughs) in terrible fear of criticism of this kind. I can remember when the worst thing to happen to you would be that a Gawker writer plucked up your essay and made it the target of scorn. Back in the days when Gawker was really like cooking with gas. And it was incisive. Like it had, it was like, it was like. It could be mean, but it was usually very incisive. And also and, kind of like entertaining. There was no enter, entertaining value. Very, funny. very yeah. funny. Yeah. You know, Gawker really like upped the game of headlines mm-hmm. and and the thrust of their argument, like everything being like front loaded in the first like headline and then couple first sentences were just, it was like, you couldn't stop reading. So I was always living in fear of that like a lot of writers around that time, because it was sort of like being called on by the teacher in class or something, or like actually more like being made fun of by the cool kid at lunch because yep. Gawker yep. were, That's they were the right. cool kids. That's right. <clears throat> and so, um, I lived in so much fear of that, that when it ha when, you know, much like getting dragged on Twitter, I lived in fear of that too. So when that happened, I was sometimes reaching out to people that whose uh, views I respect and saying, is there criticism in here that is worth listening to or taking that I'm not seeing? Because I do believe, I mean, I want to get better. I always sure, want to get better. Me too. I am me too. like Ben Franklin in this way. I am yep. always about self-improvement. And so if somebody has taken the time, even if it was 10 minutes, to write an essay that largely concerns themselves with my Atlantic essay, I'd like to know what is it that I'm missing. And so I sent it to a couple of people and they, it was you and somebody else. And they both responded like nothing. There's, there is not anything here for you to take. It's, it's, there is not incisive commentary with the exception of the idea that by virtue of what you write about Sarah Heppola, and this has long been true, people will easily categorize what you do as navel-gazing, self-pitying, self-centered, I believe, and most of my readers believe, it is spiritually the opposite of that. It is outward-looking. It is generous. It is looking out towards the world and using the human specifics of my own life as a way to draw that line. But I know that I will always be characterized as someone who stands in the town square and says, pity me. 
And I did spend a little time after that thinking, well, do I want people to pity me? Because pity oh, is such an interesting uh, sympathy. Uh, I think I spent a lot of my 20s and early 30s hoping people would pity me. Particularly, really? Particularly the men that I dated and didn't oh, love me. I mean, I was very much like, look at me, I'm bleeding. Watch me bleed. You did this to me. Why did you do this to me? And I was often dating these men. I mean, homicide detective would be the perfect example who were like, not my business. You know, like, like they were like stoic, crazy stoic. And so it was very, I got a little desperate to be seen in certain times in my life, especially around drinking. And I did write, and I don't think I ever wrote this way. I think my writing was always more generous. But like at a bar stool, there were a lot of pity me narratives. I used to tell a story to like everyone about how my boyfriend in my late 20s told me that I was pretty, but I was never beautiful. And I, I told that to every single person I went out drinking with. Well, so, okay, sorry. This is so fascinating to me because I definitely did not have this MO whatsoever. Okay, so when you said that to people, like, he told me uh, he told me I was pretty but not beautiful, what, th- what would they say? Like, can <gasps> I get you another drink or? No, they would say, Sarah. No, no, no. Is this, no. Dad, no. you're beautiful. No, 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 no. You... We're dating the wrong guy. That guy's an asshole. He doesn't understand that you're beautiful, which was what I was seeking. So to be more accurate, I wasn't seeking pity. I was seeking validation. I was seeking for other people to override the little pill of poison that he had given me. At the time, I was pretty heavy. And because of that extra weight, I really, really needed other people lifting up my self-esteem. And he had pinpricked it with that, uh, which I believe he completely, I mean, he was just being honest with me. I think he was also being a little mean, but, uh, he was trying to say that in the course of our, in the course of our relationship, I had gained close to 30 pounds and he was saying that, and I'm five foot two. And he was saying that when he met me, I was such an erotic force but that since then and since the extra weight, he saw what it was doing to me and that I was, every time we go out, he saw me trying so hard, but I was pretty, but I was never beautiful. And I think the accuracy of this, and we can argue about what it means to be beautiful, and but I, but I think the accuracy of his observation that all the little ways I was trying to change how I looked. And yet I could never really transcend a certain way of looking, whether it's because of the actual weight or whether it's because the lousy way that I felt about myself or whether it's because of the massive binge drinking problem I had to sort of negotiate these uncomfortable feelings. We can argue about what was doing what in there, but it was so true that then when he broke up with me eventually, and I moved off to New York, one of the number one things I would tell people was that. I would also tell them the story about how we went to a wedding, my friend Stephanie's wedding, and he confessed later that he had a huge crush on her sister and kind of wished that he had dated her. All right. That's a, okay. So that's a little, uh, it's a little 
not so nice. But I do have something to say about the other thing, not yeah. that I'm some expert here. But uh, if someone had said that to me, and of course, it's like where you are, like how are you feeling about yourself this year or this week or whatever. But someone said that to me and I had like gained weight and I knew I wasn't happy with that whole, with the situation gaining weight and whatever the reasons were, I, I think I would have taken that and instead of bleeding it out and just like leeching it out onto the bar barroom floor and onto all these people mm -hmm. that now have it on themselves and mm -hmm. feel some responsibility to like say something yep. because then what is that? I was just like taking it and made it like a little, like a little pellet of power inside and say, you know what? All right. You know, he's right. He's right. Maybe not right. Like in the end degree, but right now he's right. I'm kind of fucking not being and whatever beautiful means, like to or to my potential, whatever it is. And I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it as fuel to get to the next place I want to go. And I'm not going to waste that 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 potency of what was said to me that hurts so much. I'm not going to waste it on all these other people so they can stroke me because because Ooh. that's not that's not that's not you know. Obviously, when things are hurting, like if you come here and you break your arm, I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to like, I'm going to stroke your arm. But if if someone's here just like complaining, it's like, no, we got to go. We got to do other shit. Sorry. Everything you're saying is so insightful, but I did get distracted when you said stroke me because it sounded so lovely. Like, I mean, it's a little sexual, but it was also like, oh, I do want people to stroke me. I do think that is <laughs> what I uh, was seeking. It's well, so, so accurate. But no, I mean, like, I want to stay here for a second because I actually think this uh, frame of mind, which is that somebody said something mean to me rather than using it, like identifying the possible truth in there and using it as fuel to change what might be unpleasant about myself, I'm going to turn to strangers and ask them to carry it and lift me up. I think this is absolutely social media. And I think it's mm. absolutely the experience of a lot of young women in the world. And I, because I was there and I spent a lot of time trapped in that cage I really do understand it. And I really do, you know, for me, it was the bar. So you're saying that social media is like the extension of that. Like if I go on and I say, I got fired today, or my boyfriend dumped me today, or I don't fit into the pants I fit into last year, I need, or there is the possibility that a lot of people are going to come to me and say, it's okay, Nancy, you're, you're great. And this and that, is that what you're talking about? Is That's that exactly of? right. Okay. And, okay. you know, if I were to go, like, if I were on social media back when I was dating that guy, I would have gone on there and been like, my boyfriend told me that sweatpants aren't sexy. And then everyone would be like, cause they're not, cause they're not. <laughs> and then everyone in my little social media feed would have been like, Oh girl, you're sexy in whatever you wear and sweatpants are super sexy. And a man who doesn't like sweatpants is not a real man. Mm, and then some fucking what? guy would have come in and been like, uh, they're not. And I would have been like, <laughs> block delete. <laughs> <laughs> I ran a, a years ago on an old blog. I had, I, I, uh, I asked questions like, okay, ladies and dudes like, okay, men, what's the least sexy piece of clothing for a woman? And then women, what's the least sexy piece of clothing and the least sexy that men found were culottes. Culottes or, <laughs> culottes or gaucho pants. Why do they even know culottes? Culottes or gaucho pants. Oh, gaucho bad, pants. Bad, 
bad, bad, bad. And for women, it was sandals on men. They're like, yeah. look, dude, we do not want to see your feet. Don't and those do it. Thing, those things that came out, Tevas, like they're all with the strap. Don't do it. It's like, guys, no. Don't just do it. Don't fucking do it. We don't like it. Okay, I'm going to jump tracks a second because like a dude, I can't talk about this stuff for too long. Uh, just for now. Uh, uh, I want to talk a little bit. Can I do that? Or do you want to? You want something else to say about the, um, the, well, is it okay? One more thing. Okay. It is the case in my experience, and you counter this if I'm wrong, Sarah Heppola, that I'll give an example instead of saying the case. It, as an example in my life, I knew someone, she'd had like a string of like 68 terrible boyfriends, like just like one, like literally one worse than the next. Yeah. Kind of like, so what's the common denominator here? But any case, she would want to sit and just talk about this one. I mean, this is like going on five years and I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to name her. I'm like, Hey, mm -hmm. look, because every time she said it to me, I'd offer a solution. I was like, well, you know, if you do it this way or well, and she's like, she finally said, Nancy, I do not want that. I want to just talk about it. And I'm like, I can't. I can't listen anymore. I can't just listen to this. I feel like I want to offer you a solution. So is that is that the, the difference between men and women? It is one of them. And, you know, there's a line in Blackout where that boyfriend that I've been talking about, this is my late 20s boyfriend. I said something to him like, why do you always try to fix me? And he responded, why are you so content to stay broken? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't remember that line, but yeah, it's sort of like there's a leak in the sink. The sink is leaking. What should we do? Should we talk about the leak? Should we call our friends about the leak? Should we tweet about the leak? Or should we try to fix the leak? I mean, I, I'm I'm of the fixing the leak. If I can, and maybe I, I, I can't. I really believe in a masculine-feminine um, mix of this, you know, because like I do sometimes just need to talk. And I want yeah. to hear myself talk to you. And through hearing myself speak honestly with you, I will probably come to the conclusion that I need to do something. And, and I don't need, and this happens with men, I don't need men interrupting me and saying, well, just get off Twitter. We'll just do this. We'll just stop, stop doing this or whatever. It, it, no, that's that, obnoxious. That's that obnoxious. Is, that is a circuit breaker. That is a conversation shutdowner. And I don't like it. However, I really do understand. Like a lot of my friends, like mostly my female friends at this point will be like, would you like solution oriented feedback or would you just like me to listen right now? Oh, well, you know, it's interesting because Sarah, you and I text and text and text and you are, you know, you start driving down to the nut of what's going on and it go leads to the next thing. So yeah, there's, there's obviously something to talking. But there's also, there's, there's the other side of it too. It's like, well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we want to be solution oriented sometimes if the well, talking is no longer helping. It was funny. I've been thinking about something you said about us and you said, you know, we never shut up. And I was like, you know, we need to really think about whether that should be a hashtag for us because it's sort of a nightmare. <laughs> like, like never shutting up? Yeah. Oh, like oh a woman God. that never shuts oh up is like, because we're actually, both of us are both really good listeners and, and, and we can be patient and like, we actually do sh know when to shut up. Um, I think, you know, but the idea and one of the problems with the world right now is that we have 
we have heroized people that never shut up. <laughs> You're like, please, yeah. please shut up. Please shut up. That's the real hashtag. Yeah, my poor my poor husband, who he's kind of a slow waker-upper in the morning. And I wake up like ready. I'm like, right now, this is how I wake oh, up. Oh, me too. How, me too. I'm talking to you. And I would start and he would just look at me and put up his hand like, no, just wait. Coffee first. Coffee first. Like coffee before talking, okay? I've just, had I just can't. so many men. I teach men to do a snooze button with me where they just <laughs> hit my shoulder and they just go 10 minutes. Because <laughs> oh, I wake up at 4.30. So when yeah, you yeah, wake yeah, up yeah. at 8, I'm like, oh. and another thing that happened at 6 o'clock, and I have thoughts on Billy Joel. And have you ever thought about how Pressure is a really amazing 1982 <laughs> video? It's really mind-blowing. It's a year after MTV debuted. And they're just like, this is exactly snooze. right. I'm like, I'm like, snooze. you know, I found a better, I found a better car insurance thing. And listen, if we do it now, if we do it by 9 a.m., and he's like, I don't know. <laughs> but look, we get a lot of things done before 9 a.m. You um, and I are like early morning texters. It's the oh, best. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I'm awake. Um, yeah. um, one thing we both were uh kind of you know interested in, it was sort yeah. of the conversation of earlier in the week yeah. was that um that New York Times piece yeah. uh, that they two journals from the New York Times found eight, uh, in quotes, conservative men. We discovered and, eight conservative men on an alternate it, planet. We have it, found, <laughs> we have found them of conservative well, life. You know what? It's interesting because when I first read it, I read the piece and then when I tweeted about it, it's like, it's like, they're like, I think my, or close to my exact tweet was, you know, it's, it's amazing to me how the New York Times can be doing such heroic work in Ukraine. And yet they, they talk to these people like they're Martians, right? Um, but I will say, so I read it and it was, it was almost, how do I say this? Um, more somewhat patronizing when you read it, when you listened to it, which I did yesterday, yeah. it was a little, it was a little less patronizing. The one guy did have the, didn't have the NPR voice where he's talking yeah. to them, the male, but, but we um, don't, we don't, we don't front on NPR voices though, because Ira Glass is very sexy to me. Oh, and really? He, yeah, yeah, I went through okay. an Iron Glass period. I did. Okay. I did. I don't know if I, I mean, I, I, but I really respect him. And okay. I, and I really, oh, I love, I love this American. Yeah, I, I mean, think he's just like a, while, a genius but... storyteller. Yep. And so yep. anybody that has that okay. kind of genius level Sorry. storytelling, I no, I mean, I, I, I was very <laughs> close with somebody that just loved to front on Ira Glass. And I, I do think that one of the funny things that happened was that he was so powerful that people started imitating the way that he shared stories. Oh, that's interesting because it's true because come on, there is that voice. Yeah. You hear it not just on This American Life. You hear it on like all kinds of it's, other things. It's Radio it's, Lab. It's Freakonomics. And it's, it's like, all what these... is, they're all like, you You picture them in your mind. They're like five foot six with yeah. little tiny bodies. And it's like, wait, what is, why? How is this possible? Um, In any case, the story, they the, the Times was asking, you know, different questions about, like, how do you feel about society? Are things easier for men or for women? Like, what do you think are the biggest problems? And, you know, for the most part, these guys, at least to me, and I think to a lot of people that listen to it, were, you know, kind of average guys. Like, some of them were smarter than others. Some of them were more articulate than others. There were no, um, there was a couple of opinions that I was like, yeah, dude, I got to really break with that. Like, one of them really liked Candace Owens, who I consider to be <laughs> one of the truest sort of her, her, I've written about a lot of people with her particular pathologies. Let's put it that way. And I also met her and interviewed her quickly. I'm, I'm not a fan. It was let's, a let's sad day for me when Candace Owen announced the name of her book, which was Blackout. 
Oh, and which shit. now completely trounces my book in Google searches. But do you get any? Do you get any? Uh, it, it maybe overlap um, on purchases. Yeah, I think there are some people that are coming to my book, hoping that it is a bracing account of how Democrats were or like sold down the river. But they will be surprised to find the true life story of a young girl from Dallas falling in so, love with alcohol. So they're like reading the first. It's like when my daughter and I, we we wanted to go see the movie, um, the September issue um, about Anna Wintour in Vogue. And we we were late and we ran into the theater. It was like a multiplex. And and the movie's starting and it's like all these all these pictures of like cows being slaughtered. We're like, oh, this is weird. I wouldn't have thought it would begin this way. And it turned out to be Michael Moore's Meet His Murder. So anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, they're going to start and it's, it's, they're like, hmm, this woman's in Paris on a writing assignment and she's having and she's, sex with somebody she's never met before. This is an interesting way to wow. start a polemic. That's right. It's an interesting something I didn't know about Candace Owens. But um, anyway, so there were a few things. But for the most part, I wrote down actually when I was walking, I was like, here are the things when they asked them, like, what, you know, what is important to you in the culture? And I kind of cherry picked from a few things. But the ones that I wrote down is they didn't want their kids to see themselves as victims. They wanted a separation in church and st- of church and state. Um, they wanted it to be okay to disagree. They wanted more civil discourse. And in terms of what they thought were the qualities they wanted to see in themselves were compassion, integrity, taking care of family, and don't try to erase me from being the man I want to be. I thought these all sounded fairly practical. I didn't think they sounded on one side of the political aisle or not. And I and I can't say that the interviewers made it sound that way either. I mean, I think what, what led me to believe that when you first read the article is because they were sort of um, commenting on the people like, well, these people, that you know, these conservatives, and, you know, some things were very worrying, um, something, because some of them had voted for Trump. Um, but I think when you, I, I thought if you, I thought it's worth listening to. Yeah. I also really would like, and I, and I say this in all honesty, not even to be funny or cynical or anything. I would, if they found what they think are eight conservative men and asked these questions, I would like them to find what they think of as eight liberal women and, and ask them. And then maybe you do eight conservative women and then maybe you do eight liberal men. And just like, because I think there's going to be a tremendous overlap, frankly, in what people value. And, and I think that that actually is super, super valuable to the discourse. If we see like, okay, this woman who, you know, she lives in Park Slope, she's super, super blue. Uh, Maybe she loved mask mandates or whatever. But when you ask her, like, what's important to you? It's like taking care of my family, integrity, letting me be the woman I want to be. These are exactly the same things. So that we should, we should, I maybe I would hope the Times would do that. So there is note in the introduction that they've done other, other pieces of this in the series. One of them was talking to young women about politics and gender and sex. I, I didn't see that, but I kind of want them, I mean, I, and that's valuable too. Um, and maybe I'm just being like super stupid um, by wanting them to ask the same questions, but that's like, so you sort of get maybe a slightly better data set or mm-hmm. slightly more readable data set if you're asking the same questions, but you know, maybe that's not necessary. Maybe you can just talk to different demographics and and draw it from there. Well, this could be a very profound experiment. I'm reminded of like Studs Terkel or somebody like that that would do these 
really interesting oral histories of people's work. Um, this could be a really interesting document about what political views and personal concerns are in a deeply divided America. Um, like you, I found the conversation to be pretty relatable. I mean, I don't consider myself conservative, but I there were not many points when I was aware that I was even listening to conservative men with the exception of some some discussions around Trump. And it really brought for me I started thinking, why do we know who everybody votes for? Isn't that supposed yeah. to be private? Do you remember being a kid? Now, I I I remember when I was a kid it was understood that you didn't tell anybody who you voted for. Not like like you couldn't, but like that this was absolutely a private thing. I just Am remember I, people telling me, like, I don't know who my mother voted for for like 40 years. Like people saying they didn't know who their mom voted for. Yeah, yeah. I found out something years ago. So my my parents were, you know, alive when uh, when they went with Kennedy and Nixon. And I was under the impression always from my mother that, you know, of course we voted for, you know, Kennedy because she was very big into civil rights and she went and marched with Martin Luther King. And like she, you know, they were very, very pretty liberal. My father more conservative, but later my dad's like, you know, Nancy, I think we actually each voted for Nixon. Wow. I know. I don't know if that's true. My father is, has passed away, um, but uh, and my mother wouldn't remember. But yeah, it was funny. It was wow. Funny. How, you re- how you remember things as history, history colors things for you. Totally. So. But the idea, <clears throat> I remember in first grade, we had to do a straw poll at school and it was Reagan uh, Mondale. And I was the only kid in the class that voted for Mondale. Now, the reason that I voted for Mondale is because my parents were voting for Mondale. I didn't know. It's the same reason every other kid raised their hand for Reagan. I lived in a very conservative school. I mean, part of Dallas, which was conservative in itself in the 80s. But it was my first awareness that who we voted for was shameful, that I was different, and that my parents were very weird and outsiders. And I just remember after that, like never wanting to talk about who we voted for. And so it's very interesting to find myself now in this moment where like, you're, you have to say who you voted for, or you're like politically suspect. But by the way, have you ever met people that don't vote? Because I've dated a couple guys that don't vote. And that is really interesting too. Like they'll hardly tell anybody that they don't vote. Uh, I do know, I do know people that don't vote. And Catherine Mangu Ward, who's editor in chief of reason and a friend, um, she's very vocal about the fact yeah. that she doesn't vote. And I, you know, I remember, you know, years ago when you're in college and somebody's upset about something's going on, like, well, if you don't vote, you don't have a say in it. And now I'm like, no, you can have a say in it whether you vote or not. You're allowed to have a say about what something's happening. And, you know, if you don't want to vote, that's fine. Hey, we live in America. You do not have to vote if you, you don't want to vote. Like half the country no. doesn't vote. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Like half but, the you know, freaking country. Yeah. And more in local elections. Oh, oh, my God. It's like, you know, 22%. Um, so uh, the other thing that I found really fascinating something you commented on too was the sort of recursive chorus about crime 
and uh, the way people drive. This idea that the violation of small laws, i.e. stop signs, red lights, etc., was a symbol of a country's collapse. In other words, these are agreed upon laws. And this is something you read in Jonathan Haidt's work that, you know, conservatives are much more concerned with law and order. And right. because they see it as like the stable foundation and, you know, duty, patriotism, th- this is the stuff on which we build a life in a country and all these things. And so there, like, I can see, I, I did not read any of the Twitter commentary about this story. But I feel certain that there were people that were making fun of them for talking about stop signs and red lights and stuff like that. And I did at first find it a little strange, but then I had to be honest and say, I've said on multiple occasions to people lately, people are driving crazy. People are driving wild. Like I've had to be so, I'm a very chill driver. I have no road rage. I'm always like, Hey friend, you seem to be in a rush cut in front of me. And, (laughs) and I have just been like honked at and like, you know, and in ways that is so jarring lately that I'm like, what is happening? So and it, it does. And also crime wave, because just last Friday, oh. I got a text message from a friend of mine that was like, are you okay? And I was like, yep, just sitting here smoking on the couch. And he was like, there's a shooting down the block from you. And not only was there a shooting down the block from me where I could go to Facebook, watch and see that a, that a shooting had happened at a set at not a seven 11, but like a Tony's grocery store down the street. And the whole street was, was roped off. But within an hour I was sitting there and I heard this like pop, 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 pop. That was clearly gunfire right down the street from my house. Now I live in a neighborhood that's sort of a developing neighborhood. And if you go to next door app, there's the constant refrain is like gunfire or fireworks. People are always asking the yeah, question, yeah, yeah, was yeah, that yeah, gunfire yeah. or fireworks? But you know, I'm hearing it a lot to the extent, and you know, Texas is a right to carry state that gun purchases have been out of control, bananas, be really high during the pandemic. I'm actually thinking about getting my own gun, which is unthinkable to me in a, in like a previous lifetime. I would have rather like, I, I never wanted a gun in my house, but I'm actually, I've been going to the range and trying to get comfortable with a firearm to think about whether or not I would like one as a woman that lives alone and kind of publicly lives alone. Like I write about that. And yeah. so, I mean, and, and also just like shit is getting wild out there that it does feel like a breakdown of law and order. And it <laughs> does feel like synecdoche for the, the larger institutional rot of whatever the liberal democracy experiment has been. So one thing when they were talking about the driving stuff on the, we're talking again about the eight men, the New York Times thing, um, I didn't completely uh, relate to that part. I live in New York City. I have a car, but it's in Oklahoma with my daughter, so I'm not really driving. I haven't really seen that, but I did cover the the protests in Portland, and I have seen what's going on in the subways in New York, and um, I did write an essay uh, this particular week that was on Paloma that I will um, refer to, Um, but what I have 
noticed and again wrote about is so we're talking about certain standards, certain like unspoken agreed upon standards. Like you don't walk down the street and punch someone in the face. You don't cut them off in traffic and maybe caught caught running and you don't steal. Well, I wrote something the other day and and the or I, the comment that I got from a an anarchist that I've communicated with was um you know it's not your business it's not people's business or employees business to um to have anything to say or to do anything about people stealing from like I was saying for a CVS and I was like what the fuck are you talking about and it was this, there's a piece I'll link it uh in the show notes but there was this idea that there, you were going to, um, we're going to fix the ills of society, past and present and future, if we, if we relax this one standard for certain people. Certain people get to steal, and they get to steal because they're poor. I love that this guy's telling me, you know, all of these people are poor. I'm like, how do you know? How the fuck do you know? We're talking about San Francisco or my CVS in the city. You live in upstate New York. How do you know the people? I. It's actually true that the past two times I've been to CVS, not, not the, well, two of the three times there's been a theft in progress, okay? And there's nothing the employees can do. I talked to one in the aisle. I was like, what do you do? She's like, there's nothing we can do. She's like, we call the cops. They're not, it's, it's, they can't really arrest them. And if they do, it's just a revolving door. So I, I know we sound like, you know, get off our lawn, but there are some like standards that are sort of unspoken within society that make society kind of work better. And I think we, I think it is concerning that these are breaking down and some of us are writing about it. Some of this are like, you know, pushing back against it. I covered the school board recall in um, in uh, San Francisco where the school board members could have given two flying fucks whether the kids were in school because it was more important to, you know, take the names off schools of people they assumed had been racist in the past, which it turned out they're their their Wikipedia uh, explorations were very uh, poor, and they were like making mistakes. In any case, um, I, I want to I want to say one thing too, and I think it sort of is maybe a through line of everything we're talking about. When we started to talk about Ben Drivis's piece, and I said it's profoundly anti-cynical. It's also, at least to my mind, it's sort of the way you see the world. It's sort of Maybe optimism is not the right word, but you see the world as like potentially delightful, right? And you want to invite, you want to invite the world in. And I'll, I'll mm-hmm. give an example. So talking about asking if you're okay, who texted me right away when the subway shooting was in progress? Hi, Sarah Hepla, because I'm in New York City. I was totally fine. Um, but I went down later that day because I'm not too far from City Hall. Now, the, the shooting was in Brooklyn. All the activity was over there. We knew that. But, you know, City Hall is right down here, right, right by Police Plaza, and I live within a mile. I was like, well, let me let me walk down and see if anything's happening, a press conference or a, a protest, whatever. Just let me, I'm a journalist. Like, maybe something's going on. The only thing I found when I got there was a young couple that had just got married. They were adorable. I, I think they actually might have been Ukrainian, and she had on like high top cons and a little white dress, and he had a suit. They were so sweet, and I was like, "Can I take a picture of you?" And then again, she's like kicking her foot foot up, and it was just so cute. And I put it, I put on Twitter. I was like, you know, went down to City Hall to see what was going on with the subway shooting. This is what I found, and of course, people are like, you know, life goes on because it does. This is yeah. also the narrative of the city. This is also the narrative yes. of the human race. Yes. And I had one person, a journalist, I don't know who he is. I. I I guess he follows sure. me. I don't know. And he's like, this is in tremendously bad taste. Sure. And I was like, 
I realized I didn't I didn't go in and say anything because I it's not it's not worth it. Somebody did come in and was like, no, actually just the opposite. But it's like, actually, it's not. I mean, I don't say I I really I just realized we see the world differently. He sees the world differently. He sees it as, you know, something is so serious that is going on, whatever the topic of the moment, the topic of the season, the ideology fight we're going to have, that everything else has to be blotted out. If, if you don't, if you don't sit at the, at the table with the person and say, well, have you ever been raped? Then you are letting down your potential side. And it's like, mm. no, actually the world is also this other thing where there's like light and air and people getting married. And that is, that's, what I also want to pay attention to. Obviously, I'm going to keep writing about hard stuff. I'm trying to make plans right now to go back to Ukraine, tell mm -hmm. people stories. But I, I want to let the delight in. Let's let Sarah. Let's let the delight in. Uh, believe me, I I do that with you every time we talk. I um. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking was, do you remember the blue green dress? Yeah, but I came to it like way super late. Everyone had been arguing for a month already. I'm like, what is this? What is this about? And I don't remember what I saw because I just was invested, but go for it. There was a dress. <clears throat> I remember that, yeah. It looked like something I would have worn to prom in the 80s or early 90s, actually. And it was sequined. And some people saw it as blue and green. Mm -hmm. And I believe some people saw it as silver and Red, right? I, I can't remember the other one. Okay, because I saw it as blue and green, and it turns out that about fifty percent of people saw it one way or the other, and it was a completely it had to do with something about the cones in your eyes or some such, and it was <clears throat> really illuminating. And I remember at the time people saying this is like the perfect metaphor for our times, and I feel like what you've described is exactly like that. You know, that again and again on these, with these news stories and these social platforms and the essays that we write or the songs that are out there, or whatever it is, as we go through the world, there's just a blue green dress situation going on that some people are going to see it this one way. Other people are going to see it the other way. And you can't really argue across it. Let's have lots of dresses. That's, I think, one of the takeaways we should get from this story is that we should have dresses in every color. Yeah. And, and you can wear mine when you get here. Um, well, I won't be able to fit in into week. them. Yeah, you never know. You're, 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 you're short. You're not, you know, you think you're big, but you're not because you're short. So you're kind of small. I'm like a curvy, uh, busty person. It's right, well, very we'll hard. If your dresses have spandex, then I will be able to we'll rock see. them. We'll see. And I will maybe bring some of my dresses that I don't wear ever because sometimes I buy sequined dresses mm. and I I'm like, I'm going to wear this one day. And you don't. Yeah, I know. And I and don't. You, yeah. I've got some boots that I'm thinking that I'm going to give you when you get here because I don't, I thought I'd buy them and I'm not, I'm not wearing, I'm not wearing them. I bought them and I'm not wearing them. So, really? and I hate, ha I'm very, I, I throw everything out. I mean, you can ask everybody in my life. They're like, oh my God, did you throw out X? I throw everything away. I'm oh my God. Bring. Okay. This, okay. Hold on. I have to take a screenshot of this because this actually, I think is going to be our, um, our, sure. um, okay. Hold on. Now don't be so blurry here, camera. Can you just take it away from the camera just a little bit? There we go. Okay. 
That's it. That's our um, okay. That's our uh, for for this particular podcast. But I, I'm going to say something, and you can um, we we're going to be circumspect. But um, there are there are some things happening in our lives, right, Sarah? Are we going to have? Are we going to give the people what they want? We're going to give the people what they want. Are you going to answer your own question? No, you're going to answer your own question. Uh, we're just, let me people people. We're going to give you what you want. Even if you don't want it, we're <laughs> I don't know what these people want. I don't know what these people want. They might, might want like, peanut butter crackers. I was, was going to say all they want is pizza. Um, okay, well, I think we've uh, we've been here an hour and a half. Thank you for uh, hanging out with us here uh, on this little podcast. Um, we'll be back with you soon, Sarah Hepla. Anything to say, Nancy? Do you want to tell the people what your shirt says? It says "Daydream." It says "Daydream." This actually, this shirt was in a bag of clothing that Leah McSweeney, who some of you look her up if you don't know who she is, she was throwing away and um, I nabbed and she's a friend of mine. I grabbed a really cute leather jacket and this shirt. And when she saw me in it, she's like, that was my 11-year-old daughter's shirt. So anyway, I'm wearing an 11-year-old shirt. That's that's how that goes. So Because I'm not particularly busty. They so. All your shirts are cool and they have cool backstories. If I didn't know you, I would be jealous of you. There's no reason to do that, Sarah Hepla. Okay, everybody, we'll we'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us. Bye.